bad things happen in our life, sometimes the only thing that we know how to do is just turn our back on God and, and flee from Him. My name is Cody Nesper, and I'm 21 years old. When I was 16 years old, my mom was arrested from a different church that we had been attending in Arizona. I was so angry with the church for what they had done, and I was so angry with God for allowing his church to do something so atrocious. And still, I wanted to be a part of the church while also being a part of the family. And, and combining those two things, I wanted to be um, ultimately the savior of both the church and my family. And, and I, I couldn't do those things anymore. And so it broke me. So I, I left the church physically and I emotionally withdrew from my family. And I wanted nothing to do really with either one of them. And when I was 17 years old, we ended up here at Scottsdale Bible for family counseling that, that we can maybe work through some of these issues. And Jamie was sitting across the table from me and so compassionately just asked me, how do you feel about all of this? And, and I told him I didn't want anything to do with God or his church or organized religion. The entire experience had just completely turned me off. And he looked at me and said, I, I, I can understand that response and I'm sorry you feel that way. And so my anger and hatred and frustration just burned in my heart and made it so hard towards any concepts of church or God. And when I was 18, uh, my mom was finally sentenced uh, by the state for a five-year prison sentence. And she's still serving out that sentence today. And it's been really difficult to walk through that journey together and to only get to spend a certain amount of time with my mom and to have her ripped from the family for so long. The day before my 19th birthday, God brought me to a Bible study that met on Friday nights. And it didn't, it didn't look like a Bible study and it didn't look like a church because it was kids just 14 to 19 years old just studying the Bible and praying for each other and loving on each other and just gathering together. And so I got plugged into that, to that Bible study and we would go to the skate parks and share the gospel and pray for people and try and minister to them as best as we could. And I, even as we were doing that, I knew that I was a hypocrite because I was trying to earn my salvation. That if I preached the gospel enough or prayed for enough people during the day that I, I could earn my way to God. And then I remembered that, that Jesus' grace is the only way to come to God, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And so one night I cried out in prayer that, God, I, I need to believe in you. I need your grace in my life. I need it to reign over me. And in that moment, it did. It just, it changed. I, my heart was changed that I, I no longer believed that I could earn my way into salvation, that I could... I could trust upon Jesus's righteousness for salvation. And since then, he's been establishing a place for me to serve in his church. And when I was 20, I was really wrestling through where I was supposed to serve, how I was supposed to serve. Was it in the marketplace or was it in the church? Or how, how can those two things blend? And, and he really gave my heart a passion for being a part of the church for for not going into the marketplace, but for being a part of ministry and, and serving people full time and serving the church full time. And so now that's what I'm doing. I'm pursuing trying to go into ministry and 
it's so funny that God's taken me from sitting in Jamie's office four years ago saying, I'll never be a part of organized religion again. And he's brought me to a place where all I want is the church and all I need to be a part of is the church and, and that I, I need people to know the love of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible thing when you see somebody go from, I don't want anything to do with God, and I don't want anything to do with this church, to that. And, and we show you these stories because we, we hear and see and get to witness what the Lord is doing all the time throughout the week here at Scottsdale Bible and lives of people. And, and, it's, and it's our hope that it just encourages you and, and that you know that God is, is really doing an amazing work in individuals that are part of the community of faith here at this church, that somehow that might spur you on uh, in your own faith. And, and so I hope you're encouraged by, uh, by that, that very real story in which there's nothing Pollyanna in that at all. That's just the way it is. And this kid's now studying theology at Moody Bible Institute, hopes to be uh, a pastor someday. He's working in our youth department as a volunteer. I mean, this is just it's about as real as it gets. And so if you're at a place today where you need some encouragement, you got to wonder where God is and is he alive in your life, I hope you can look at that video and say, yeah, he is. And if that doesn't convince you, then we're going to bombard you with the Bible right now, like we do all the time here at Scasta Bible, and take a look at what his word has to say uh, about who you are. That's the series we're entering into right now. It's a series on identity and who our identity is as those made by God, his creation as well, as we go along in the series, those redeemed uh, and saved by him and his son Christ. So hang on to your pew. It's going to be a good series that we're in. So why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father, thank you that there's not one person, not one person here in this worship center this morning or in this town or in this world that is beyond the scope of your grace, of your reach uh, in our lives. And, and Father, we can all relate uh, to the story we just heard because we all, uh, as Cody said, we all run from you at times. We all get discouraged and Lord, we fall and even at times fall away. Uh, but, Lord, when your grace is upon us, when your calling is sure, uh, we know, Lord, that you're going to call us back. And, uh, Lord, we love seeing prodigals uh, come home. And Father, I pray that as we turn to your word now, as we um, try to gain encouragement on this idea, this question of who we are as those made in your image and those redeemed by your son Christ, that, God, you do nothing but cement our identity more and more over the next few months here at our church and use the book of Romans as we follow it as our guide. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the, the deepest question a human being can ask, and I think we all know this, is who am I really? I, I mean, you, somebody once said, you're, you're not a human doing, you're a human being. So you're not the sum of just your job and your hobbies and your vacations and your 401k, but you are, or, or an you're an organic human being and, and you have an identity both from creation as well as we're going to see as we go along in this series, even redemption. And you and I live in a culture today that, that for good or for bad is constantly asking the question, who am I? That's just part of what it means to be born in the western part of the world, the western half of the world. 
We have psychology, sociology, the sciences, the arts, all of them in different ways kind of asking the question, overtly asking the question, who am I? And each successive generation that you and I have been exposed to, whether it's the builder generation or the boomers or the busters, have all been on this holy hunt trying to figure out our identity, who we are. And so back in the 60s, you had James Dean, rebel without a cause. Then in the 70s, you had the hippies that were all about free love and rebellion in the 60s. And then in the 70s, you had the me generation, you know, the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. Tom Harris, I'm okay, you're okay. Then in the 80s, we started to make a lot of money, and it was all about material acquisition and wealth. Then in the 90s, a bit of disillusionment came in, and so we're back to square one, trying to find ourselves. And then this last decade, terrorism on our own soil, who would have thought? And the insecurity that came with all of that. I mean, look around you. Each generation, the builders, the busters, the boomers, and now the millennials, are all asking the same question, who am I? And it's a good question to ask. And though there are so many places to get your knowledge from today and a never-ending reservoir of people who will give a stab at the answer answer to the question, who am I? What we're going to do over the next few months here at your church is allow the Bible to guide us in answering the question, who am I? What's my identity at core? Beyond what I do, beyond my family, beyond my 401k, what is my identity as a human being? What does the Bible say about who I really am? And we're going to use the book of Romans, though there's plenty of spots in the Bible. We're going to use the book of Romans to guide us in our discussion here, particularly parts of chapters 1 through 5. So imagine that. A book that was written 2,000 years ago, before the discovery of the atom, before electricity, TV, computers, cars, planes, cell phones, microwaves, nuclear power, even the stock market, a book that was written in what historians call antiquity is going to tell you and I who we really are. And the reason that it's going to do so is because this book claims to be the Word of God. It claims to be the Bible, God's written word to you and me, and therefore it's authoritative and can tell us intelligent things, God's things, about who you and I are. And so here's what I want you to do over the next few months here at your church as you hang with us in this series. I want you to be the judge as we open up to the book of Romans and allow it to speak to us about who we really are. I dare you to match this up against your own thinking and your own life. Ask yourself as we go through this series, what do I think about who I really am? What does my culture say? What does the world around me say? And now what does the Bible say? And as you hear cogently and clearly what the Bible says about who we really are each step of the way, simply ask yourself, does that fit my experience? Does that seem to make sense? Does that seem to be intelligent talk about the world around me? And I think you're going to find The the things that the Bible says, I know you will, at least they have for me, uh, make a lot of sense and are extremely livable. And so having established all of this, here's the first thing. It's the first installment on what Romans tells us about who we really are. And it's my main point today, and this is the starting place, and it's this. And that is that God has created you in his image, so the first part of your identity is that you're an image bearer. 
That's the only phrase I need you to remember as we start this series. That the Bible says, Romans affirms, that you are an image bearer created in the image of God. If you brought a Bible with you here this morning, I want you to open up to the book of Romans. We're going to look at only two places today, Romans and then the book of Genesis, as we bounce back to something Romans will talk about here. Open up to the book of Romans, chapter 1, and verses 20 and 21. But we're going to do some work in the earlier verses of Romans in the coming weeks here. But we're starting with this whole idea of creation, and Romans 1 addresses this idea of creation in not-so-subtle language. So Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. If you don't have a Bible, look up here on the screen. It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For they knew God. They knew God. Now, obviously, this is talking here about all of creation, which includes you and I. And so notice a few very powerful things that the short two verses are telling us about our theme before us. First, notice that it's telling us here that God made this world, everything in it, including us. It says very clearly, since the creation of the world. The implication being here that God made the world. And then as you're hanging on to that, notice secondly that Romans 1 is telling us that this world, by the fact that it was created by God, displays the Creator's handiwork. It mirrors it. Kind of like an artist's signature on the bottom of a painting, it says God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature are clearly seen in this creation of His, seen and even understood. We'll get to what this means in a minute here, but just notice that textually here in the text. And then notice thirdly that as a result of all this, it says that we are all then in some way connected with God, the Creator, because we are His creation, and because we are made by Him, it even so boldly says about all human beings that we know Him, that there's some intrinsic knowledge of God that every human being, whether in rebellion or having experienced his redemption in Christ, it doesn't matter, every human being has some innate knowledge of God. We know some things about him as those that are made in his image. Now, this is obviously, this whole passage here, affirming and expounding on probably one of the most famous passages that all Americans know in all of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, the passage on creation i got to believe when Paul the Apostle was telling us these three things here uh, about image bearing, the fact that God made us, his signature is on us, and that we in some way then know him or know about him, that he was thinking of Genesis 1. So flip back in your Bibles and look at Genesis chapter 1 and that famous passage in verses 26 and 27 that tells us what happened when God got to creating you and I after he created everything else. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. 
Now, this is a very fascinating, if not revealing, passage. And, and, and I'm going to get to the image and likeness thing in a minute here, but as a quick side note, isn't it interesting that it says about God, let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness. Now, scholars have wrestled for years with what that means. Jewish scholars said that it simply is a stylistic way of denoting the fullness of God. Some others argue that that must have meant, no, that there were angels present. So therefore, the plural for God is that there were angels present at the time of creation. Interestingly, Christian theologians for the last 2,000 years have seen this as a sign, an early sign of the Trinity in the Bible. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Bible would go on, the New Testament to spell out pretty clearly, is seen here even in the creation act. God creating us in His image, His meaning plural. And yet, no matter what interpretation you take there, here is what everybody does agree with. And that is that creation, when God made human beings, he did so very distinctly in his image and in his likeness. Those are the two words you want to grab onto there. That word image there literally means in the Hebrew to shade. It carries with it the idea of a shadow, and just like a shadow is the image of what it is representing there. So when God created humankind, it's telling us here in very Semitic language that we are a shadow of the Creator. We have certain aspects of the Creator in us. And then that word likeness there in the original language means resemblance. That when God made humankind, he was making something to resemble himself. And so when you put these two things together, image and likeness, I like how one Old Testament scholar puts it when he said, and I quote, image denotes the shadow outline of a figure, the likeness, and likeness the correspondence or resemblance of that shadow figure to someone or something. And so just try to think of a shadow in your mind's eye that resembles or reflects the real thing. That's what God says about you and I, that we resemble or reflect the creator himself. We're in his image. I know this is going to date me as we go out through the day. We have four services here at Scottsdale Bible, and they tend to get younger as we go throughout the day. But when I think of a shadow image, you know the most famous shadow image I can think of? Give me a click here is this shadow image, right? Now I'm telling you, by about the 11 o'clock service or the 5 o'clock service, they're going to be scratching their heads saying, who is that? Because most people under 50, even most 40, don't know that shadow image. But you guys, because you're more mature, know that shadow image. Who is it? It's Alfred Hitchcock, probably one of those famous movie makers from, you know, the last century. And every one of his movies and every one of his shows would begin with this shadowy image. Now, as you're looking at that image there on the screen, I, I want you to understand this. That is an image that is like something, a man. It's an image that is like someone, Alfred Hitchcock. It's a shadowy outline that's in the image of Alfred Hitchcock. It's an image of him. It's not really him, it's a shadow of him, but being a shadow, it carries with it many of the characteristics and outlines and features of the real him. 
And what Genesis 1 is telling you and I is that we have been made in the shadowy image of God. And hence we're in the likeness of our Creator. That when people look at you and me and all of creation looks at us, they're seeing in some way the shadowy likeness of God. Not God himself, that would be pantheistic false theology. No, we aren't God, but we are like God because we are uniquely created in his image, like a shadow. Now, if you're with me so far, the key question then becomes, in what ways then, Jamie, are we like God, right? How is the image or likeness seen or manifest in our lives? In other words, what is the essence of God's image in us? What does this really mean? Three things I want to share with you in our time remaining this morning. Three things that the Bible tells us about the image of God in you and me and what this all means. And the first thing is this, and that is that it tells us that we are different and unique from all of creation. What does the image of God in you and me mean? We are unique and different from everything else that God has made. And so look at how the early words of Genesis go on to affirm this aspect of the image in us. This is very fascinating. Look at Genesis 2-7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, now here it is, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Very fascinating. Not all scholars, but many See what's happening here in Genesis 2-7 as the image of God being imparted to human beings. Because God didn't do this with all of other creation. He breathed into Adam and Eve, Adam here, a, a, a sense of his image when he gave Adam life. And then this was imparted to all of creation. And so that little phrase, breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life, is where the image, some scholars, many scholars think, is found. And so listen to how Kyle and Dalich, two of the most revered Old Testament scholars in this last couple of centuries, say about this passage. Look up here on the screen. They say the image of God here, meaning Genesis 2 verse 7, consists in the spiritual personality of humankind in unity of self-consciousness in free will, in his spiritual as well as his physical nature, a creaturely copy of the holiness and blessedness of God. Don't miss what they're suggesting here. That when God breathed into us the breath of life, when he created us in his image, he did so by helping us to have a thought process that is like God, a willful process that is like God, an emotional process that is like God, distinct, because it's the breath of life, from all other creation. God put his divine breath in us, something he didn't do with the land, the animals, the seas, and the plants, and the ramifications of this are profound. Because it's suggesting that we are in the sense then like him with his divine breath, and it affects the way that we think and the way that we act, and the way that we feel. Now, to best show you what this really means, I want to have a little bit fun. And to do this, I want to introduce to you a couple of members of my family that Kim and I love very, very much, and they are our dogs. 
And my dogs are going to help us all understand the image of God in you and me. So dog number one, this is Callie, who is our oldest dog right now. Callie is three years old. She is what you would call a mutt. We got her off an Indian reservation when she was eight weeks old. She was part of a litter there that people didn't want. And she's fairly bright, extremely loyal, always hungry, and very dependent. This is the kind of dog that will follow you all around the house, but she is sweeter than sweet, and we love her a lot. And then we have a second dog who's about a year and a half years old. His name is Cooper. And Cooper, <laughs> he just looks like trouble, doesn't he? He is a Jack Russell Terrier full of more energy than the Niagara Power Grid. He's impish, curious, a lot of fun. And as you can imagine, he is constantly in trouble. I mean, this thing is trouble on four legs. How many of you know in Arizona that, that you need to have water lines, right? You know, zip lines and sprinkler heads? He eats them every week. I'm in a constant battle with him. In fact, I had to take all 11 of my sprinkler heads and replace them with brass sprinkler heads because he can't eat brass. But if they're plastic, he'll come in wagging his tail with one of my sprinkler heads. And there's water about 10 feet high flowing out of my, my backyard. He, he chews carpet. He chews wood. I mean, for the first time in my life, a dog sleeps with Kim and I. And the only reason is, is then I can keep my eye on Cooper. <laughs> and yet we love our dogs. Just like many of you that have dogs or cats or whatever, they're a part of your family, and you love them a lot. And we enjoy our dogs. Now, I want you to think, however, looking at the pictures there of my two dogs and the animals that you might have, and I want to compare and contrast them with us in the three main areas that the Bible implies that we have the image of God, thought, will, and emotions. First, consider the whole area of thought, and I would simply submit to you that there is a huge difference in the thought capacity and process between my dogs and me. And here's the difference. I'll pick on Callie right now. For a dog, she's pretty smart. She knows what mom's home means. So when I say mom's home, she runs to the door. She knows what walk means, what bone means, what car ride means. She even knows what get out of the room means. She's a pretty smart dog. And yet, think about it, she does not have the capacity for self-reflection that you and I do. In other words, she doesn't know that she knows. She doesn't sit around thinking that she's thinking. She doesn't have self-reflective days in which she says, man, am I having a bad day, unlike yesterday in which I had a good day. She doesn't think like that. She's not conscious that she's conscious. I'm not dissing my dog. I love her. It's just the way that she is made and wired. And as a result of that, she is incapable of seeking meaning or purpose on any spiritual or subjective plane, and yet you and I know that we know. We have the capacity for self-reflective thinking in which we can either be miserable just by thinking, we can know what we do not, we can know what we know, we can even be aware that there's certain things we don't know, and that propels us then to think or search for more meaning and purpose in life. 
That's the Creator's mark upon you and I that we might seek Him and know Him and find Him. We have a thought process like nothing else in all of creation. Isn't that amazing? And then think of the whole area of will. Again, I'll, I'll pick on Cooper this time. As I mentioned to you earlier, my dog Cooper is a very willful dog. So certainly he has a will. He has a kind of will that can choose to go or stay, bark or not bark, run or walk, eat sprinkler heads or not eat sprinkler heads. He is a willful dog. But listen, he doesn't have a moral will that can choose to make his own moral decisions on a merciful, compassionate level all on his own. He needs a tremendous amount of help just to be obedient and do the right thing. Why? Because he's an animal, and I love him as an animal, but he's an animal that has been wired and designed to operate on instinct. And he doesn't have written into his DNA a capacity for morality and willful choosing of what is right like you and I do. And I know some of you are thinking, was well, that really true right now? I want you to think about this example. When I got Cooper, we had no more problems with rabbits in our backyard. None at all. If you've ever seen a Jack Russell hunt, it's actually a beautiful thing, if you don't mind a little gore. Because it's what I call three shakes and you're done. If there's a rabbit in my backyard, Cooper will bound out there. He's faster than you've ever seen. He will grab him by the neck. Forgive me for this PG illustration. Three shakes, neck broken, no more rabbit. And that's what this dog will do with a rabbit. That's what many dogs will do when they're on the hunt. Now, try to imagine this. Try to imagine Cooper doing something like this. Imagine Cooper seeing a rabbit in our backyard and going, you know, that poor rabbit probably has some kids somewhere. And this rabbit's only in this yard to try to find some food. And I'll tell you, this rabbit could really use some compassion today, so I don't think I'll kill it and I'll just let it go. Can you imagine a dog doing something like that? No, you can't. When human beings function like that, you know what we do? We call them animals. When a human being functions with no regard to a higher level of morality or willful choosing, we say you're acting like an animal. You're acting only on instinct. Why do we say that? Because the animal kingdom is like that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that animals can't be trained to not do certain things. Of course they can. But only you and I have this self-reflective moral ability to choose the higher good on our own. Where does that come from? The Bible says that comes from God. And then lastly, consider emotions. Again, my dogs have emotions. I mean, they bring lots of joy to our life, and one of my dogs is just one big emotion, Callie. And yet there's a huge difference between them and us. And the huge difference is, is that my dogs are not capable of selfless love that chooses to relationally invest in another without any thought to what it means for them. Don't get me wrong. My dogs can love. Kim and I argue about this a little bit sometimes. Kim will say, you know what, Callie is such a loving dog, and she just is so faithful, and she loves me no matter what. And I'll say, I was with you till that very last comment, sweetheart. I think Callie is loving. But at the end of the day, only human beings have the capacity to truly love in a selfless way without any thought to what they might get in return. Think about that. It's what makes us so very different from every other aspect of creation around us. 
And you know, the reason that I think many of us don't see this very clearly the way it is now is that you and I live in a culture that is engaged in what uh, academics call anthropomorphic language, which is simply a $10 word, meaning we ascribe human characteristics to non-human things. That's what cartoons are all about. I mean, Bugs Bunny was a rabbit who could talk. Mickey Mouse was a mouse who could talk. Uh, Dr. Doolittle would talk to all the animals. Think about all the cartoons that you've grown up with that now have become ingrained in our culture, but we have made animals seem like humans. And though in many ways that's innocent, and I don't have much of a problem with that, if we carry that, however, into an adult view of theology, then I'm telling you, we have misunderstood the beauty of his creation, whether it be an animal or a human made in his image. And so I was in Flagstaff yesterday with my wife, and we were getting out of the heat and visiting some friends up there. And, and, and as I was driving out of Flag, there was some kid who obviously went to the university, and, and his car, he had a bumper sticker on the back of his car. And his bumper sticker simply said, dogs are people too. Dogs are people too. And I just went on record saying I love my dog. But everything in me wanted to roll down my window and say, hey, look, kid, it's obvious you haven't graduated from college yet, because if you had, you would know that that bumper sticker is not true. It's not true. Dogs are not people. Mickey Mouse doesn't talk. Bugs Bunny never said, what's up, Doc? Do we all understand that? We're having fun with our kids. And their danger is, is that if we ever think that there isn't that big of a difference, and there are strains of theology in our world that say that, that there isn't that big of a difference between us and the animal kingdom, but we don't understand the uniqueness of you and I made in the image of God. And what a wonderful and beautiful and dignifying thing it is. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, even the level of expectation and responsibility that he holds us to in our lives. You're created in his image. And the first implication is, don't ever doubt this, you are unique and different from all other creation. Now, more quickly, because we're running out of time, notice a second implication of being an image bearer. And this one is amazing. And that means that you're also endowed with incredible abilities. You're endowed with incredible abilities. And so when you read Genesis chapter 1 and 2 all in one sitting, I encourage you maybe to do that this week, you can't walk away but with this one thought, and that is that when God made this world and he looked at the pinnacle of his creation, you and I, he was in amazement, awe, and wonder. And he said it's very good. I, I mean, it was a purely creative, wonderful thing. And God said, my image is on them. Go and create. Go and produce. Because I've made something really, really good. And they're called human beings. And those we're going to see next week, that part of our identity now is not just image bearing, but we are fallen. And then we're going to flesh that over, out over the next few weeks leading up to our redemption in Christ, which is all part of our identity. That never overlook the fact that the image of God, even in the midst of the fall, is still in us. And this is why, by the way, that even people who are living in rebellion to God, and you all have people like that in your life, can still do wonderfully creative and productive things. I mean, there's been plenty of inventions that you and I are beneficiaries of today, whether it be MRIs or, or telephones or, or mass production, mass communication, the digital era that, that were discovered and made 
by people who gave no glory to God and who, and who had no relationship with God, at least publicly, to speak of. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder in my theology, how can that be? I mean, how can it be that people who, who live such godless lives could invent such wonderful life-saving things? The image of God answers that. They're made in the image of God. And even in rebellion to him, which we all were at one time, even in rebellion to him, God says the image is still there. And the image is good. And it can do good things to benefit humanity. Because my image is ingrained in each one of my created human beings. And you know what this means on a very practical level then? Is that everybody's a 10 somewhere. I mean, this is the cool thing about this. That all of us have differing gifts and abilities from birth that make it so that we're really good in certain areas. And you know who teaches us this more than anything else? Our kids. That when you look at your kids, isn't it true that from birth they were so very different? And yet each of them had areas of their lives where you see God's handiwork and just go, man, they're really good in that area. My son Paul, I tried every sport with him when we were little, when he was little. I tried football, baseball, basketball, soccer, hockey. And I realized that Paul would probably never be in the Olympics in 2012, that he probably would never be on Channel 12 in the Olympics. And yet, as much as he's an okay athlete, we realized early on that the kid had a really good mind for math and for numbers and for science. In fact, I remember when he was in sixth grade, Kim wanted to send him to math camp when we were back in Cleveland. And, and, and Paul said, Dad, please don't let Mom send me to math camp. I'll get beat up by all my other friends at school. So we kind of dissed the idea of math camp, but we saw something in him. And isn't it ironic that he goes off to college this year and he's gotten a scholarship for physics at a good liberal arts school. I know that sounded like bragging, and it absolutely was, but my kid got a scholarship for physics. He's not on an athletic scholarship, as some of your kids are, but he's good. He's a 10 in an area, certain areas of his life. Contrast that to my other kids. I got one kid who struggles for every B and odd A that she gets, but she's creative, she's mature, she's relational. In fact, Kim says she's the only adult in our family, and she's not out of college yet. And so the reality is, is that you could share the same thing with me when you look at your kids, is that you see the handiwork of God in them and how they're really good in certain areas. What's that about? It's about the fact that God says that when he made us in his image, that's a good thing. And so for some of you, what you need to hear today, because you're kind of beat up from life, you're not feeling very good at certain things, you're not feeling like things have turned out like you'd hoped they would, come back to the image today. Come back to the fact, as the old bumper sticker used to say, God don't make no junk. And he didn't make junk when he made you. Yes, you're fallen. We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. But the image is still in you. And that image is a good and a powerful thing. Because, you see, here's the last thought. We have just a few minutes, so we're going to wrap up with this. The third implication of the image, and you're going to like this, is that it means you and everybody around you are greatly valued by God. That's what the image of God means. You're greatly valued by God. I want you to look one last time at Romans 1 and notice something that we glossed over way too quickly earlier. After telling us that God created this world, which as we've noted includes you and I, and that all creation bears witness to this, 
it says something very quick but powerful about human beings in God's image. Look at verse 21 again. It says, for though they knew God, they knew God. You know, Christian theologians have wrestled with this phrase for a while here because this isn't talking about Christians here. Do we all understand that, Mike? You get that? This is talking about all human beings. All human beings, whether saved or not saved, whether in his image or not in his image, Christian, Islam, whatever, they, they know God. And you're going, whoa, wait, what does that mean they know God? Well, we have to flush out what that means. What that means in the context here is it's simply by being in his image, whether in rebellion or reconciled, every human being, because they are in the image, because the divine breath is in them, has some innate knowledge of God, some closeness of spirit, some value that God has imprinted on their life that they can't deny as hard as they might try, some divine spark in them in which it will draw them back to God if they will let it. I, I think the best way to, to help explain this is in Acts 17 when Paul the Apostle, who also wrote Romans 1, is, is trying to explain this to some Greek Stoic philosophers. This idea that, that all of us have this innate knowledge of God because we're valued by Him. And look at what he says in one point in this argument in Acts 17, 26-28. He says, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now, here it is. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Well, what's that saying, folks? It's telling us that God has made us that he is sovereign and in control of our days, and that even the most hard-hearted person could just be a gnat's eyelash away from coming back to God. Who knows? Paul the Apostle, when he was Saul persecuting the Christians, nobody ever thought that he would become a Christian. So you and I today look at Howard Stern or Mick Jagger or anybody around us that we think, oh my, I hear Christians say this all the time, they're really far from God. That person is so far from God, insinuating that there's almost no hope for that person. And I think to myself, bad theology, bad theology at that time. What you're really saying is, I don't like that person and he bothers me, and I wish they were far from God. <laughs> no, the reality is, though, is that all of us made in his image can find our pathway back to Him. We're going to talk about that in this series here. And part of being made in the image of God means that God greatly values all of His creation. And James 3 couldn't be more clear when it says that because people are made in the image of God, even our words to them need to be checked at every level, lest we ever devalue the creation of God around us. So who are you? We're starting to see, aren't we? You're created in the image of God, so very unique and different, filled with incredible potential and greatly valued by the one who made you. Don't ever forget this. Over the next few weeks here at our church, we're going to be learning what has gone wrong because that's also a critical part of who you are. So next week, we're going to dive into the fall of humankind. And then we have to take a look at some really difficult subjects in August, things like judgment and wrath and what God's response to the fall has been. 
But as we look at some of those more difficult subjects that give us clues to identity, don't ever forget the only reason God might take drastic action when we stray from him is because he loves us so much. Because we're made in his image. And as Peter said, he wants all of creation, everyone, to come back to him in repentance. He loves everybody. And that includes you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good start to a series in trying to understand from a 40,000-foot perspective our identity as those made in your image. And Lord, we start at the right place, as Romans 1 has, with this idea of image-bearing. For since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities have been seen, for they knew God. And Father, that gives me such great hope. That allows me to see everybody from my neighbor to media celebrities to even those who might bother me in culture today and seem like they go so against the Christian faith. It allows me to see them as ones who have ultimate hope. Because, God, you made them and you love them and you long for all of us to be in right relationship with yourself. So, God, we want to make it eminently personal today. I pray, God, for each and every one of us here today that we might cement deep in ourselves this idea that we are image bearers. And no matter how much of a mess of our lives we have made, we're going to talk about how we can undo that stuff, God. I pray that we might begin in the right spot today and affirm that you made us made us with great potential in your image and that you value us as a result of that. May, Lord, that be a great starting place for us in forging the identity you want for us. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you all next week.